Hello and welcome to the Grace Place NYC. We are a church in the neighborhood of Hamilton Heights in Harlem. Our purpose is to live for Christ, love the lost, and transform our culture. Good morning, Grace Place NYC. Whether you're viewing from Facebook or YouTube, we want to welcome you to church today. Uh, I believe that I have a word from the Lord for you. And so we are actually going to be in part two of the cloud this morning. Last week, we had our collective service together with Dream Center NYC. It was a wonderful time. Dream Center opened up their facilities in Brooklyn, and we did a collective service together, and it was just an amazing, amazing experience. And so if you have not had the opportunity to listen to message one, that's okay. You can go back and listen to it. We have it up on Facebook or it's already on our podcast. So you can listen to that as well. But today we're going to be in part two. So last week we looked at Numbers chapter nine and I spoke about the cloud, which was God's visible presence in the wilderness as the Israelites uh, left Egypt in 400 years of slavery and were moving towards the promised land. And so God, in his grace and his mercy, he led the Israelites through the wilderness by his presence, a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And whenever the cloud lifted from the tabernacle, the children of Israel knew it was time to move to the next location. It was time to start walking. And whenever the cloud settled over the tabernacle, the children of Israel knew that they were to stay and camp out. And as we talked about last week, that is an Old Testament picture of the New Testament reality that the people of God are to be led by the Spirit. And I'll say this, there has never been a more important time in our history than now for the church of Jesus Christ to be led and guided and directed by the Spirit of God. I want us to look at John chapter number 16, and I'm going to read verses 13 and 14. And it says this, and this is Jesus speaking. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. Verse 14, he will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. The Holy Spirit, whom Jesus is speaking of here, will guide us into all the truth. And we know that truth is not a thing. Truth is a person, specifically the person, Jesus Christ. He tells us in John 14, 6, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And as we submit to the Spirit's work in our lives, he will constantly move us towards Jesus. In fact, verse 14 says that the Spirit's work in our lives, the purpose of the Spirit is for us to glorify Jesus. For example, in our marriage, the Spirit will move us towards us treating our spouse the way Jesus treated his spouse. He gave his life for her. In our finances, the Spirit will move us towards generosity. Jesus became poor so that you and I could become rich. And in our friendships, the Spirit will move us towards carrying each other's burdens the way Jesus carried our burdens on the cross. That is why it is so important that we, as the people of God, are a people who are led and guided by the Spirit of Christ. 
That's my intro. Now let's move on to the text for the day. And we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 uh, and and, uh, verses 1 through 5. And this is Paul speaking to the church in Corinth, and he says this, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Verse 5, but with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Paul, um, in this passage, is addressing the Corinthian uh, church's newfound freedom in Christ. The issue here was that their freedom lacked self-control. This is actually a very dangerous mix, and it's very prevalent in the church today. Uh, There are believers who mistaken holiness for legalism and are living in sin because of this false idea. And so Paul here was using Israel's past and history as an example and an illustration of what was happening in the Corinthian church. He was confronting the Corinthians' misuse of Christian freedom, and basically saying, look, you're acting like the Israelites did in the wilderness after they would, were freed from slavery, and I want you to see the mistakes that they made, and I don't want you to make the same mistakes. So Paul begins this chapter in these verses that we read by laying out five spiritual benefits or advantages that Israel received after being freed from slavery in Egypt. So number one, they were under the protection of the cloud, the presence of God. Number two, they supernaturally passed through the Red Sea while the waters came rushing down on the Egyptian army. They were all baptized into Moses, indicating their solidarity with him as their leader. And they enjoyed the spiritual food, the manna and the quail that God supernaturally provided for them. And then they enjoyed supernatural or spiritual drink. And in some Jewish legends, the actual rock that Moses struck to give the Israelites water, uh, in some legends, Jewish legends, that rock followed them throughout their journey, sourcing them with water. And so Paul is, is, is talking about that here. He says that that rock that followed the Israelites throughout their journey in the wilderness was actually Christ following them on that journey. And so excuse me, the lesson Paul is trying to teach the Corinthians and that we need to get today is this. The spiritual privileges and benefits that we have as children of God never give us a license to sin, right? They actually give us a greater responsibility to obey God and glorify him. Just because we're free doesn't mean we're exempt from falling into sin. Even though God led them by his presence, it required a total dependence on him. And if you're familiar with the wilderness story at all, maybe in Sunday school or whatever, uh, if you're familiar with that story at all, you know that the Israelites failed miserably over and over and over and over. Just because God provides his presence to lead us does not mean we take him up on that offer. And so in the following verses, Paul shows us the result of Israel's overconfidence and misuse of their Christian freedom. 
Just as he talked about five spiritual benefits that the Israelites enjoyed in the first five verses, in the next five verses, he goes into five sins that the Israel uh, people committed that brought his judgment upon them. There will always be obstacles or counterfeits to what God is trying to do in your life, right? These five things mentioned by Paul were hindrances and blocks to the children of Israel being led by the cloud in the wilderness. So 1 Corinthians, uh, we're, we're still in chapter 10. We're moving down to, to verse number six. Now these things became our examples, talking about the, what, what the Israelites went through in the wilderness, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. In this passage, we see five sins that will keep us, you and I, from being led by the Spirit of God in our lives. And so we saw lust, we saw idolatry, we saw sexual immorality, we saw tempting Christ, and then finally we see grumbling and complaining. And so we're going to go through each of these five and, and we're going to we're we're just going to dive into these. And so Paul tells the Corinthian believers here to look backwards into Israel's past as an example of how not to live. Have you ever had a mentor or a parent ever say to you, I'm only telling you this because I don't want you to make the same mistakes that I just made? That's essentially what Paul is saying to the Corinthian believers. Uh, have you ever watched a TV show where uh, in, in that particular episode, they would always flash back to something in the past uh, they, they had a little bit of dialogue for what was going on in the present, but they would just throughout that whole episode, they would, they would do a flashback in, into something in the past that happened. This is what this passage feels like as Paul is communicating these truths to the Corinthian believers, and he's trying to confront specific things happening in the church presently. He's going back into Israel's past, and he's, and he's talking about specific stories to illustrate things that are happening in the church. He's trying to communicate this. Just because it was Israel's history does not mean it needs to be your history. Just because your parents struggled with that thing doesn't mean you have to struggle with that thing. Just because no one in your family attended college doesn't mean you don't have to attend college. And so saying that, let's go to the first sin that Paul talks about, and it's lust. Paul here is referencing Numbers chapter 11 when he brings up how the Israelites lusted after evil things in the wilderness. And so Numbers 11 verses four through six says this, the rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if we only had meat to eat, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, uh, the, uh, but now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. <sighs> the devil is a master at reminding us how great our life of slavery was before Christ while conveniently leaving out the misery 
that we felt while we were living in that former life before Christ. The Israelites craved the food that they had to eat in Egypt, the very place of their enslavement. They were lusting after that life that they were enslaved in. If we're not fixing our eyes on Jesus, discovering more and more his beautiful grace, we can be susceptible to self-indulgence and craving evil things. We need God's strength and grace every single day because if you are a Christian, hear this, if you're a Christian, your deepest desires are godly, but your strongest desires might not be. Your deepest desire might be to please the Father, but your strongest desire might be something of the flesh. When we're prohibiting the work of the Spirit in our lives, our hearts will naturally move towards unhealthy things. Lust, uh, the definition of lust is, is simple. It's misdirected desire. It's craving or desiring something that you have already been freed from. God's provision, manna, became ordinary, commonplace to the Israelites, and they started craving what they had in Egypt. We become susceptible to lust when God's good gifts become ordinary, when we lose the awe of what God has done for us through salvation, when it just becomes ho-hum and ordinary to us. You know, for example, when the beautiful gift of marriage becomes ordinary to us, we can become susceptible to wandering. We can, we can start thinking the grass is greener on the other side. I, I love that saying. I don't even know who, who initially originally said it, but he said, if the grass looks greener on the other side, then you need to start watering your own grass. Instead of wandering, instead of allowing your eyes to wander, your mind to wander, start watering your own grass. Start taking care of what's already yours. If we start to take God's blessings and provision for granted, we can fall into ungratefulness about the way he is providing. The second area that Paul talks about is idolatry. Uh, verse 7 of, of, uh, of chapter 10, it, it says this, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in re uh, revelry. Tim Keller says this, everyone worships something. The only choice you get is what to worship. I think that is so profound there. The Israelites were barely out of Egypt when Moses was with God up on Mount Sinai and the Israelites became impatient with them and made a golden calf and called it God. They started worshiping this golden calf and started to party while they were worshiping, okay? When you love something, anything more than you love God, you will be led and driven by that thing that you love more than God. It's not that loving things is wrong, right? It's good to love things. It's, it's that we love things too much and we love God too little. When we commit idolatry, what we're doing is assigning ultimate value to something and that thing, whatever it is, becomes our functional savior. For example, if career becomes ultimate to us, 
it will drive us into workaholism to the point where we can even lose our family as we're pursuing our career. Why? Because nothing becomes more important than, than stepping up and going up that corporate ladder. Nothing becomes more important than achieving that next thing in the company because our career has become our functional savior. In verse 7, Paul is quoting from Exodus 32 and verse 7, and he says that the Israelites made a golden calf, sat down to eat and drink, and got up to indulge in revelry. That word revelry is, is, is an interesting word. It means to engage in an activity for the sake of amusement and or rec recreation. It, it means to play. Their worship was a form of entertainment. How entertainment is such an idol in our culture today, in our world today. Movies, TV shows, Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, uh, social media is a huge piece to this. Uh, video games, sports, many of us watching today online. If we were being honest, we would, you know, we're living for entertainment. We're living for the God of entertainment. We're so obsessed with being entertained that we can't even be bored anymore. You know, what, what's the first thing we do at the first sign of boredom? What do we do? We grab our phones and we start looking at it. We start scrolling. You know, sometimes it's so bad for me that when I'm driving and we're at a red light or we're in traffic and we're stopped, I'll start checking emails or ch start checking uh, Instagram or Facebook, right? Um, a recent study found that the average iPhone user touches his or her phone an astounding 2,600 times a day. We are an entertainment-obsessed world, and it's destroying us. John Mark Comer, in The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, says this, What you give your attention to is the person you become. Put another way, the mind is the portal to the soul, and what you fill your mind with will shape the trajectory of your character. In the end, your life is no more than the sum of what you gave your attention to. If our attention is mostly on things that entertain us, church, then we are probably not being led by the Spirit of God into all truth the way that we could be, okay? Because we've got this grabbing our attention, we've got that grabbing our attention, um, and, and, and it's keeping our attention from being focused on the things of the Spirit. Let's make sure that our attention is on things that are uplifting and beautiful and lovely and glorious. Amen? The third area that Paul talks about is sexual immorality. Verse 8 says, Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. When the Israelites were encamped at Acacia Grove, some of the men started having sex with the Moabite women who were cultic prostitutes. This sexual immorality brought down the judgment on, of God on the people. Sexual immorality of any kind is a twisting of God's good gift of sex. Sex is good, contrary to what you grew up being taught about in, in, in your churches. Sex was actually invented by God, and it's a good thing, but sexual immorality twists that good thing into something outside of his will, his design, and his purpose. 
There was also extreme sexual immorality happening in the Corinthian church that Paul was addressing here. When we go out of the bounds of what is prescribed in the Bible when it comes to sexuality, God is going to judge it because he's a holy God. Uh, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20. It says this, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. If you are engaged in sexual immorality today, whatever it is, I want you to know that Jesus was judged on the cross for your sin. There is no sin too terrible or too perverted or too gross that Jesus did not go to the cross and was judged for, right? But saying all that, that doesn't mean you have a license to continue in that sin. He took the punishment so that you and I could have freedom, amen? There is forgiveness and freedom for you today if you'll repent of your sin and turn to him. God loves you and doesn't want you, want to, to continue hurting yourself through sexual sin. His will for you is to honor him with your body. The fourth thing that Paul talks about here uh, is tempting Christ. Verse 9, nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Tempting Christ is thinking that we know better than God what our future should be. Tempting Christ is the opposite of trusting Christ, okay? Over and over and over as you read and look through the Exodus account, we see this rise up in the Israelites. They didn't like the way God was leading them. They would say things like, why did you bring us out of Egypt to this God-forsaken wilderness to die. It was better in Egypt. It was better being enslaved. It was better being whipped and being uh, uh, forced to do labor 14, 15, 16 hours a day than to be out here in this God-forsaken wilderness. Or why did you take us from Egypt when we had food to eat? And now all we have to eat is this manna. I'm sick and tired of this manna. It's like those people who say, God, I want to serve you. And then God opens some doors and they start serving in the church. And then they start crying. I feel so used. I thought you wanted to be used by God. This is exactly the attitude the Israelites had. The Israelites grew impatient with God. Impatience with God's leading in your life will make you miserable. Because here's what I've discovered as I've read the scriptures and I've walked with God and I've experienced this firsthand. God isn't on our timeline. He's not on our timeline. He functions, he, he functions outside of space and time. Okay? So you might have a timeline, you might have a schedule, but but God, He He is He He's doing what He wants to do. He's gonna accomplish His will and um and, and He's not gonna do it according to our timeline. And so if you grow impatient with God, I'm telling you, you're gonna be miserable because God knows what he's doing. His ways are higher than our ways. You know, I was ready to move to New York City in 2003 when I took a short-term missions trip here, but I didn't, that didn't come to fruition until 2015, 
right? I was, I was ready to marry my wife, Priscilla, uh, my first year of Bible school, but I didn't have the opportunity to marry her until six years later, right? God doesn't work on our timeline. Why? Because, and if we knew what God knew, we wouldn't work on our timeline, okay? God knows best. God was trying to work on the interior of the hearts of the Israelites, but they wanted instant, immediate results. They wanted instant gratification. And the final thing that uh, Paul talked about and that I want to uh, sh- you know, talk about with you today is this, complaining. Complaining. Verse 10 says, nor complain, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Other translations use the word grumble. This word complain or grumble, it it means to express one's discontent. It means to express uh, dissatisfaction. Paul here is, is again, he's referencing Numbers chapter 16, where a faction of people rose up against Moses and Aaron, who were the leaders of the Israelites, and and they were leading them through the wilderness to the promised land. They expressed discontent and dissatisfaction in their leadership. They said, who do you think you are to lead us? Who died and made you king? What makes you special? We're just as qualified as you to lead. You're no one special. We, We would probably do a better job than you're doing, Moses and Aaron. Their impatience with God resulted in their grumbling and complaining about Moses and Aaron's leadership ability. Here's the thing, okay? And it's, this is important for you to understand. It's not a bad thing to go to your leader for clarification or even to let them know that you don't agree with the decision that they made. There's nothing wrong with that. What was evil in this situation and what is evil in the sight of the Lord is that they spread this discontent and dissatisfaction among the people. There was a, a whole group of people that they uh, that they poisoned with their discontent and they spread this discontent among the people of Israel. They used their influence to create disunity. We need to be very, very, very careful about complaining and grumbling about the spiritual leaders in our lives. God places pastors in leadership within churches to lead and care for his people. And when we intentionally sow disunity and rile people up against the vision and direction God has given them, God does not appreciate that. And here's why grumbling and complaining is so dangerous. We can grumble and complain our way out of the will of God. The Israelites did. If you read to the end of their journey through the the wilderness, the entire first generation of Israelites that left Egypt, besides Caleb and Joshua, they died off before God allowed the people of Israel to enter into the promised land. Why? Because they wouldn't stop grumbling and complaining and sowing discord among the people. Grumbling and complaining, guys. It, you, can, you can grumble and complain yourself right out of the will of God. God could have something incredible that he's doing in your life, but if your heart is full of complaining at the way God is leading you, you don't like the way God is leading you, you don't like the way God is providing for you, you don't like the relationships God has brought into your life, you just can't ever be content, you can't ever be grateful, you can grumble and complain your way out of his will 
and blessing. And that's not God doing it. That's you and I doing it because we can't be grateful. We can't grab a hold of this. And Paul was saying to the Corinthian believers, and I'm saying to you today, look at the Israelites' example and don't follow it. Do the exact opposite of what the Israelites did. Resist the temptation to spread the discontent or dissatisfaction with others. If you have an issue with someone, go to that person you have an issue with and resolve it. Go to the person you have a problem with. Don't go to other people and start spreading things, right? Don't go to other people and start spreading your own offense around. As we're getting ready to close today, you might be thinking, Pastor, there is no way I can be led by the cloud of his presence because I'm just like the Israelites in the wilderness. Maybe as I was going through these five obstacles, these five sins to the presence of God, the Holy Spirit started convicting you about some things in your own heart. If you feel like this, I have hope for you. Listen to what Paul says after he lists off these five things in verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. If you're struggling today with any of these sins that the Israelites in the, in the wilderness succumb to, I want you to know you are not alone. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. Everybody struggles. Everybody falls. Everybody messes up. Everybody falls short of the glory of God. You are not an isolated case. One of the, one of the most evil things that the enemy tries to do in our, in our lives when we fall into a sin, he tries to make us feel like we're the only one. He tries to, to get us into isolation because when we're in isolation, he can start heaping condemnation all over us. And when we, when we are walking in condemnation, we can't walk in the, in the confidence of being a new creation in Christ. We can't walk in the confidence of our gifts. We can't walk in the confidence of our anointing. We can't walk in the confidence of our new nature. And that is the exact strategy the enemy wants to use on you. So I want you to know that you are not alone that there are other people struggling with the exact same thing that you're struggling with. And they might be even struggling even, uh, even worse than you're struggling. You're not alone. And then the, the, the other thing is, and the most important thing you need to know is this, that God is faithful. God is faithful. We can overcome temptation because God is is faithful. We can be led by the Spirit of God into the great plans He has for us because God is faithful. We can receive forgiveness and deliverance and freedom from sin because God is faithful. In His faithfulness, He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can handle. And in his faithfulness, he will provide a way of escape for you. And in his faithfulness, he will give you the strength to bear the temptation. No matter how strong the temptation is, no matter how bad that temptation is tormenting you, no matter how strong that temptation is surrounding you, I want you to know he's going to give you the strength to bear that temptation. 
And let me end with this verse, Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, talking about Jesus. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because Jesus overcame all temptation and sin not, he has given us the power through the Spirit to overcome temptation as well. Because Christ overcame all temptation without sinning, he can sympathize with what you and I are going through. Regardless of what temptation, it doesn't matter what you're being tempted with right now. It doesn't matter what you're struggling with right now. The Bible tells us that Jesus was tempted in all ways. And because of that, he can sympathize with our weakness. He can sympathize with our struggle. He can sympathize with that tug of war going on in our heart. He can sympathize with those evil desires. He was tempted in all ways, but he sinned. He never sinned. And so we can go to the sinless one to receive grace and mercy for our sins. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you for being with us at TGP NYC. You can listen to other sermons on Spotify or wherever else podcasts are available. For further details about the Grace Place, please visit tgp.nyc.